Welcome to part two of Maggie's coverage of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. If you have not listened to part one, please take a moment now to do so, or re-listen if you need to refresh your memory on the details of the case before we discuss theories in this episode. We also want to take a moment to give special thanks to the information obtained from Kristen Seavey's podcast, Murder, She Told. Her interview with Jane Borowski, posted on September 13th, 2022, was instrumental in information provided here on our podcast in part two, as you'll hear in just a moment. And if you'd like to learn even more about Jane's survival, as well as the lives of the victims discussed last week, consider checking out Jane's own podcast, Invisible Tears, and season one of the Dark Valley podcast. If you enjoy those podcasts, which we know you will, give them five-star reviews. Now, let's dive into part two of the Connecticut River Valley Killer case. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Late in the evening of August 6, 1988, 22-year-old Jane, who was seven months pregnant at the time, was returning from a county fair in Swansea, New Hampshire. Okay. That's probably my redneck way of saying a very beautiful city name. When she stopped at a closed convenience store to get a soda from the vending machine. Okay. So she gets her soda. She returns to the car, soda pop in hand, opens up the soda pop, and she notices that a Jeep Wagoneer is parked next to her. Oh. So from here, I'm going to let Jane tell the rest of her story. As according to Murder, She Told. So this is going to be like a pretty long quote from Jane. But we are going to interject throughout. Okay. So, And this is obviously going to be first person from Jane. Okay. So she says, I pulled in, went to the vending machine, got my soda, and noticed this vehicle pulled in and parked right next to me on my passenger side of the car. I didn't think anything of it. I had no reason to think anything of it. As I was sitting in my car, drinking my soda, getting ready to pull out, he walked around the back side of my car, asked me if the payphone worked, and opened my car door and tried to get me out (gasps) of the car. Uh, okay. Mm. Right then I'd be freaking out. Yeah. If somebody even touches my car door, I'm going to be like, why are they touching that? Yeah, I lock my car as soon as I get in it. Yeah. As soon as he opened the door and tried to grab me out of the car, I screamed. I screamed so loud, I broke blood vessels (gasps) in my eyes. 
Wow. I was just shocked it was so fast. I didn't have time to respond. As he was trying to pull me out of the car, I somehow got my feet up and I was kicking him. And I ended up kicking and smashing in my windshield. The next thing I know, he takes a knife out and says calmly, maybe this will persuade you to get out of the car. <gasps> it did. I got out of the car. Oh my gosh. And the fact that he did it calmly. Yeah. After her oh, kicking out of him. Wow. I was like, what do you want? And he told me I beat up his girlfriend. Then I was really confused. I was thinking, oh my God, this guy's a nutcase. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. So I was like, no, I don't know your girlfriend. And he said, isn't this a Massachusetts car? I have a New Hampshire car. So he kind of walked around to the back of my car like he was going to look at the license plate. Oh P.S. My goodness. Parents, there will be one curse word in this to quote her. So just know if your okay. child's with you. Yes. At the time, I didn't feel threatened because I thought maybe he was just confused and thought I was somebody else. The next thing I know, he starts walking to his vehicle. And I said these words that I regret the rest of my life. Oh, no. I said, hey, asshole, what about my windshield? Because he was walking away and I'd smashed the windshield. Oh, my goodness. At the same time, I didn't feel threatened. I thought he just made a mistake. And that's when he came back around to my side of the car where I was standing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. This is intense. This is like, why I avoid confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. I would just be like, have a great day. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. Sorry for the confusion. Yeah. Oh. I, my insurance replaces this once a year. It's fine. Oh, my goodness. He then put the knife up to my cheek. And that's when I knew. I was scared again. I didn't know what he was capable of doing. This next part, I was, my jaw dropped. I saw a vehicle drive by on the main road and I knew I had to run and scream for help. That was oh. the only way I was going to get out of this situation. So I did. Oh. I dashed and dashed for the road, screamed, yelled, tried to get their attention. They drove right by. Oh my goodness. The next thing I know, he tackled me down like a football player. I was on my back on the pavement and he was on top of me. And before I could even realize what was happening, he was stabbing me. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. She said, goes on to say, I was pregnant and I knew I had to protect my baby. So as he's stabbing me, I'm trying to protect my baby. And he just continued to stab me for what felt like forever. And all of a sudden, it just stopped. And I'm lying there. I just couldn't believe that he just stabbed me like that. Then he calmly got up and walked away. I could hear him calmly walking. <gasps> then I heard his vehicle start. And I said to myself, oh my God, I got to get up. I got to try and get up. I rolled over on my hands and knees and started getting up. He just drove so slowly right by my head and looked right down at me. And I looked right up at him. And he drove away. He didn't speed off. Just drove away. End quote. Oh my goodness. I think what is so terrifying to me about what happened to her is his calmness throughout yeah. each part. Yeah. Because it's like he's calm when he puts the knife up to her cheek and I can just see her saying like hey what about my windshield and uh -huh. then he just slowly turns around just wow. but it's still calm about the whole thing and then not even caring that she's not dead there's such a disconnect between that calmness and the 
this like vicious side when he's stabbing her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what's perplexing to me. Amazingly, though, Jane and the baby both managed to survive the attack. Wow. Jane was stabbed 27 times. Oh, my goodness. And survived. Yeah. And her baby was unharmed. <gasps> she said, quote, I had two collapsed lungs. He cut the tendon in my hand and in my knee. He sliced my jugular and lacerated my liver. I had a piece of my liver removed, but my baby was unharmed. There were no stabs or anything to my baby whatsoever. She was perfectly fine. Oh, oh my goodness. If there can be a silver lining, yeah, that is what it is. Yep. So on top of the miraculousness that is Jane and her baby surviving. Her, yes. She was also able to provide a description of her attacker to the police. Okay. And I posted it down below for you, Allison. But she went on to say, quote, I didn't know about the serial killer until after my attack. I ended up reading it in the newspaper that I was possibly a victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, which was crazy to me. After I was better and able to really speak with detectives, they interviewed me quite a few times. I gave them a description of the vehicle, which was an early 80s Jeep Wagoneer with a grain side, and did a composite of him. They took fingerprints and everything off my car. They scraped underneath my fingernails while I was in the hospital because they thought maybe I'd scratched him. So they had all this evidence, but 34 years later, there's no arrest. Unfortunately, as of today, the Connecticut River Valley killings are still unsolved. Nobody's ever been arrested or charged, end quote. Man, that has to be terrifying for her, number one, to have been mm -hmm. attacked and to know that that person has never been arrested. Yeah. Number two, as terrifying as her encounter was, she's right in that they were finally able to gather some evidence because he grabbed her car door handle to mm -hmm. open it. I mean, there were there were many, I guess quote-unquote mistakes that he made where we can get some details but third this picture that you're showing me looks absolutely nothing like the original picture that i just looked at so i posted the side-by-side -side view on the next page because oh, okay. i thought the same thing so the one on the left is jane's okay. sketch and she said that she estimated him to be between 5'7 and 5'8, about 150 to 160 pounds. So not a big person. Right. Um, he had blonde hair, was clean shaven, and then was driving that Jeep Wagoneer. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Jane just described him as quote unquote normal looking. And so then I was trying to think huh. what the time difference was between right. the two sketches and maybe... He that had gotten older. Mm -hmm. But I think, like, the guy on the left looks in his 40s. The one on the right, the first composite sketch. Looks very young. Yeah. Could be 17. I would agree. And to say that he has blonde hair. Well, the drawing on the left, the new one from Jane, doesn't look like he has blonde hair, mm -mm. first of all. But that would discount those sightings from people who saw the one who uh, was in the subdivision where With they the said it was, yeah, the dark haired young man. Mm -hmm. But 
I get that. I mean, by the 90s, you could have contacts. Those mm-hmm. were, you know, becoming more popular. So I can get the shift from glasses to contacts. The nose looks a little bit similar, mm-hmm. but it's almost as though. So this new sketch, and I have no idea why, but it looks a little bit like Christopher Walken to me, the actor. Mm-hmm. It does look as though if it were the same person, then he has lost a significant amount of weight mm-hmm. because his cheeks are no longer rounded. Mm-hmm. They're more sunken in. Yeah, it looks like they've applied contour to his cheekbones because mm-hmm. he has a definite cheekbone and then even lines from the nose to the chin yeah you know and the the hairline is is different but again Mm -hmm. with age you could have a receding hairline so it's hard to say but they don't look like the same person to me agreed so jane you know is rolling up to get up as he's driving away and she is actually able to make it to her car and she makes it to a friend's house so keep that in mind as we continue talking about what happens next with jane okay so obviously after jane survives this attack the psychologist that they brought in philpin wanted to meet with her to get her description of the killer and then anything she might recall from the night that both she and her baby nearly died. Mm. And he thinks it's a good idea to put her under hypnosis and she agrees to do that. Okay. And during that, she described that tremendous struggle that took place. And she, again, in this hypnosis session is focused more on protecting her unborn baby over protecting herself mm-hmm. i think that would be a natural instinct i would have oh, done yeah. the same yeah unsolved mystery said quote but at some point during the assault it was as though she had done everything she could do and she couldn't do anymore she stopped struggling and it was at that point the assault stopped According to Philpin, it seemed as though the greater her resistance, the more determined he was. As soon as her resistance began to wane, the attack ended, end quote. That is very interesting to me. Which I think really points to some of those profile points that we talked about. How right. he feels like he owns women. It's almost like he didn't have to kill her to feel the same satisfaction. He was able to overpower her and she gave up and that was enough for him. The submission. Yeah. Interesting. Philpin next had Jane try to recall the drive to her friend's house. Because remember I just said she drives to the friend's house. Right. And she actually remembered coming up behind another car and realizing it's that Wagoneer that's her attacker in that car. How freaking scary would that be? I'd just stop. I'd just stop right there. I'd go in reverse. I'd do something to get away. That is terrifying. Yeah, she's a much stronger person than I could ever dream of being because mm. I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. Mm. So then, of course, she's asked if she could recall his license plate number. She said it had the number 662 in it. But the rest was too dirty to read. And then Mm -hmm. she also gives 
that the Wagoneer is between, she thinks, a 1975 and 1985 model. Okay. So they have a little bit to go on. And after this description of the attacker's car, police actually do something that I think was really smart. Mm-hmm. They want to see if they could identify the find, obviously, who's driving this car. And so right. they actually enlist the help of police in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And so they say, hey, we have this car. This is the make and model. This is the approximate year range. Let's see if we can find people that own this car. Okay. Because we even know that it's like the grained one. We know the color and all of that. So they generate a computer printout of all the Jeep Wagoneers registered at the time in all three of these states that match the description that Jane had given them. And they're able to narrow it down. So, I mean, we're talking three states. Yeah. They get it down to 1,350 potential people throughout New England. Okay. So, that's a a sizable, you know, a sizable amount that you could work with. Yeah. I mean, that's still a huge number, but it's not huge when you're comparing the populations of three states. Right. Well, I guess four states, right? Because we have the state she's in, Connecticut, and they're enlisting. So, yeah, it's, that's a pretty small number. Mm Mm-hmm. But they found no leads Mm -hmm. that pinpointed to a suspect. Well, because I guess it could be the case that, you know, if you're looking and you say, oh, this one's owned by a woman, so we're going to rule that out. But it could be a sister who owns the car or something. Or like somebody borrowed it. Right. Yeah. So now, as if there were not enough victims. So those are all of the confirmed victims. We're going to talk about several possible victims. And this is also a pretty big handful. Joanne Dunham was last seen walking from her home in Charleston, New Hampshire on June 11th, 1968. So she would have been oh. even before she would have been the one first of the first. One. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was actually walking to the bus stop on her way to school, but she never made it to school that day. So unlike now, when your kid doesn't show up and you're taking them to the dentist and they call you and say, hey, did you know Sally's not at school today? And you're like, yeah, she's in the car with me. We're going to the dentist. Right. They didn't do that back then. So they had no way of really knowing that she was missing until she didn't come home that afternoon. Gotcha. Her body was quickly found, though, at 4.15 the following day. On a roped off dirt road on Quaker County or Quaker City Road in Unity, New Hampshire. So that same town. Okay. But this time this victim dies of asphyxiation. Mm. Which is different. Mm-hmm. On October the 5th, 1982, 76-year-old, so way outside. Oh, the, the age range. Age, yes. Yeah. Sylvia Gray was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death in a wooded area just a few hundred yards from her home in Plainfield, New Hampshire, the day after she was reported missing. Okay. Next is Stephen Hill, and this is the only male, hmm. which I think it goes is against the yeah. profiler. Mm-hmm. He was 38 at the time. He was last seen on June 20th, 1986 getting his paycheck from his employer in Lebanon, New Hampshire. On July 15th, Stephen's body was found with multiple stab wounds in Heartland, 
across the Connecticut River from where Sylvia's body had been found four years earlier. Okay. So the locations are close. I gotcha. But still, it goes against mm-hmm. yeah the profile that we have. On May 20th, 1984, 16-year-old Heidi Martin went for a jog in Heartland, Vermont on Martinsville Road. The very next day, in a swampy area behind an elementary school, her body was found. So, like some of the official victims, she had been stabbed to death, but they also confirmed she had been raped. And with the earlier confirmed victim, it was a probable rape. Okay. So, we don't know for sure. Interestingly, there was a confession to this crime, but was acquitted. This person was acquitted, and we'll talk more about him. Um, But per the Boston Globe, he was acquitted, and she is still obviously unsolved. But nearly three years later, Barbara's body would be found just a mile from where Heidi was discovered. So we have that proximity in location. Okay. Sadly, we're not done with this list. On June 24th, 1989, decomposed body parts consisting of arms and legs belonging to a woman were found dumped along Massachusetts Route 78 in Warwick, Massachusetts, less than one mile from the New Hampshire border. It's believed that the entirety of this body was dismembered. Even though... The deaths we've talked about are brutal. This one is just a little bit more gruesome with the dismemberment. Right. They were never able to find the head or the torso of this person. They think they were disposed of elsewhere. And obviously this death is is ruled a homicide. We don't even know the identity of this woman. We just know that she was white. She had an athletic build. And she was of average height. Okay. On July 25th, 1984, 14-year-old Carrie Moss, and I think she would be the youngest yeah, of New Boston, New Hampshire, left her parents home to visit friends and then disappeared. Almost exactly to the day, two years later, so on July 24th, 1991, skeletal remains were found in a wooded area in New Boston, and they were hers. Mm. So they couldn't determine how she died but it is believed she was a victim of homicide wow so with all of these victims so those that was she was the last of the possible victims you know we have the confirmed victims the possible victims the two sketches there's a lot of speculation that surrounds who the connecticut river valley killer could be right and so we're going to talk about a couple different possibilities okay Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
I don't know if it's been the same for you, but it feels like the price of everything keeps rising and my bank account keeps shrinking. Even when I have money passively sitting in investment accounts, those funds rarely rise at the rate of inflation, leaving me feeling like I was in the same boat. All of my money was going somewhere, but never coming back to me. The age of stock picking is here. With towering inflation and elevating interest rates, sticking your money in a passive market fund just isn't going to get you what it used to. But it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market. There are still ways to invest for the future. You just need to know where to look, which is where the Motley Fool comes in. The Motley Fool Stock Advisor Service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios and it literally has paid to listen to them. Historically, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 2023, and listeners of Coffee and Cases can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit fool.com forward slash coffee and cases to start your investing journey today. Did you know that dehydration is a leading cause of daytime fatigue? I was shocked to learn that even mild dehydration can cause headaches, muscle weakness, and brain fog. But luckily, there's a solution. Cure. Cure believes that hydration should be simple and effective, but also clean and natural. That's why they use only the highest quality plant-based ingredients and avoid any artificial or harmful additives. They're committed to transparency and honesty. All of their ingredients are clearly listed on their website and packaging, and they're always happy to answer any questions or concerns. Ready to combat dehydration? Track here today and feel the difference for yourself. Use code Coffee and Cases and get 20% off your order. So the first, which is the most widely held possibility, is this man named Michael Niccolo was the serial killer. Okay. Mainly because he was a known killer and had connections to the area. So let's talk about what I mean by that. Okay. Again, according to murder, she told on December 31st, 2005. So we're into the future now from these 1980s murders. Okay. Near Tampa, Florida, the 56 year old Vietnam veteran, Michael killed his wife, Eileen and her 22 year old daughter, Taryn and then committed suicide. But this wasn't his first incident of violence because he did have a pretty violent past. Okay. In the late 80s, he was common law married to a woman named Michelle, and they lived in Massachusetts, and they actually had two children, Nick and Joy. And Allison, he was described even by his children at one point as angry, he was possessive. He had severe PTSD symptoms from serving in Vietnam, which, you know, the PTSD part is definitely understandable. Right. The violence, not as much so, mm -hmm. because there are so many, which I know mental health, the stigmas were much different in the 80s than they are now, but there were still avenues available for help at the VA hospital for, for him if he had chose to do that. Right. But his anger and his 
possessiveness got out of control, and in August of 1988, Michelle actually left Michael, taking the kids with her to an unknown location to Michael. So she just gets up and leaves. Right, which is probably, if she's terrified, the best oh, yeah. possible scenario. Oh, yeah. But he soon found them. Oh, no. So she disappears with the kids again in November of 1988. So it didn't even take him that long to find her. Mm. That's like three months, four months. Mm -hmm. So they disappear again after Michael finds their location. And since that day, they have never been seen from again. So wherever she went. Well, or he found them. Mm -hmm. And did something to them. Or she is thankfully still safe somewhere. Yeah. So around 2000. So that's a pretty big jump from 88 to 2000. Yeah. Michelle's family hired a private investigator to try to find out what happens to Michelle. And this private investigator actually got in touch with Jane. To talk about her experience with the Connecticut River Valley killer, because they're thinking, could she have been a potential victim as well? Mm. So around 2006, again, according to murder, she told Jane came forward in the press saying that she thought Michael was the man who tried to kill her in August of 1988. So the potential crv killer well and especially if she saw an image of him because she Mm -hmm. saw her attacker face to face and this connection got national press coverage obviously so anytime you search the connecticut river valley killer michael's name comes up when you look up jane's name michael's name comes up in connection to her so it's just a big circle But since that confession was made in 2006, Jane's opinion on Michael has changed. She will now tell you she no longer thinks he is the murderer. Okay. So she says she has this private investigator that contacted her. And she said they had a lot of conversations going back and forth for a few years. She said, quote, I never felt positive it was him, but I also took it with an open mind. She spent two years completely convincing me that it was him. But deep down, I never felt truly that way. Mm. But she had a lot of credible information and she really tried to make it fit with Michael. Then I started hearing other people say, well, this doesn't fit or this doesn't fit. So I started questioning her about some of the hearsay and circumstantial things. She never wanted to really address the things that didn't fit, only the things that did or the things that she made fit. Mm. I ended up severing all ties with her because she got really defensive when I was thinking maybe it wasn't him. End quote. Wow. Yeah. So she's in a a heightened state too because of Mm -hmm. the trauma and so I'm sure if you have an authority figure who's saying, no, this was him, think about this, look at this, look at this. And then you mm-hmm. would start to convince yourself because you want so desperately for whoever have did an this. Yes. Yeah. And she actually goes on to talk about that she worked with an investigative journalist who was also looking into Michael, but she said that the new. I guess, eyes or opinions on the Michael situation Mm -hmm. made her question more 
And basically this mm-hmm. journalist says he's one that can't be excluded, but not fully included either. Okay. And detectives in Concord also looked into Michael, but they said that it couldn't conclusively be okay. him or conclusively not be right. him, basically. Again, he's just a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. And she felt that this PI that was in touch with her really just wanted the media attention. Mm. She doesn't know how, I guess, how true her intentions were but she said quote it took a long time to convince me and i never really wanted to say to the media that i felt like it was him but she told me if i didn't say that nobody would take us seriously and i did want people to take this seriously i wanted the authorities to investigate him she felt like they were doing nothing though they were actually investigating him i really want them to take me seriously so i told her okay i'll say it was him I wish I didn't, but I was in a situation where I really wanted this to be solved. And I really wanted the authorities to take this seriously and to investigate it. So I ultimately said that it was him. I wish I didn't. That makes me sad that she felt so pressured to say that it was, even though she was having her own doubts. Yeah. And she makes some really good points in this interview with Murder She Told. Because she says, you know... There's a lot that doesn't really fit because he does kill his wife and then her daughter, but it's mm-hmm. with a gun, which oh, wasn't right. his M.O. Typical. Yeah. You know, that he would have used a knife if he was going back to things that he did in the past. Right. That makes sense. And she's ended this with saying, now, was Michael a bad man? He was a very bad man. That guy had a lot of issues. But do I think he's the Connecticut River Valley serial killer? No, I don't. End quote. Okay. So there's a couple more. Another possibility is Delbert Tallman. And this was the one that I said we would come back to because there was the confession. Oh, okay. And he was acquitted. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the time Heidi was killed in 1984, 21-year-old Delbert confessed to committing the rape and stabbing of the teen because she was also the one that had the probable rape. Delbert would later go on to trial, but while he was on trial, he would recant his confession and the trial would end with an acquittal. Okay. The main reason that he was suspected was because of his proximity to the area where all of these killings took place and this killer seemed to operate, Mm -hmm. but they investigators could never get a solid link to connect him to anything. So they never looked into him after he was acquitted. Well, plus you have the fact that if he's confessing quote unquote, to the killing of Heidi in 1984, if he is the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, then that would mean one of the confirmed, the first confirmed victims is 1978, which was Mm. six years prior. So if he's only 21 and 84, he would have been 15. And that seems very young to me. I know it could happen, but even that first confirmed victim was very, I guess, formulaic and calculated. And, and mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I'm thinking if that were his first one, 
it seems a little too professional. And then with, when you got to the theories, the first theory was Oh, yeah, it was 68. like 1968. He would have been five. So I don't know. I think the age of Tallman for me might knock him out in terms yeah. of the theories for me. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't mathed all of that. But now that mm-hmm. we've we've worked through that, yeah, I would agree mm-hmm. with you. According to Newsbreak, Gary Westover was a 46-year-old paraplegic residing in New Hampshire. And in October of 1977, oh, he told his... 97? Oh, yeah. What did I say? 77? 77, yeah. yeah. 1997, he told his uncle, who was a retired sheriff's deputy, that he'd done something terrible. Quote, he relayed to him a story starting with a night of drinking with three friends. At one point, they all head to Vermont where they murdered Barbara Agnew and dumped her body. Westover's uncle passed his confession along to police, but there seems to have never been any follow-up. End quote. No follow-up. Which is crazy to me. Okay. So he said he and friends, because I was going to say, mm-hmm. how long has he been a paraplegic? Because Right, because that would make a difference. Right. But if he's there with friends, then it could have been the friends and he's partaking in it. But she's also, now, that was the one that took place at the rest area. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess it would make sense if they were heading back from somewhere. I don't, I don't know. I just don't know about that one. Because that's almost right smack dab in the, well, I guess it's near the end of the spree. Yeah, and the traveling, if they're out drinking and then they, you know, are traveling, and they are at the rest stop like that part I can see makes sense. But obviously I feel like police have to know this theory is not credible because right. they didn't follow up on it. Well, and we know with Jane that whomever the Connecticut River Valley killer is walked to her. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... Unless one of this Gary Westover's friends was the serial killer, then, okay, then it would warrant a follow-up. I just just don't think it's this one. Mm -hmm. In 2012, this case was profiled on the show Dark Minds, and during that airing, two new suspects were mentioned, and I got this from Unsolved. One was a man named Rodney Stranger, who was convicted of killing his girlfriend, Crystal. And he's also suspected in the disappearance and death of Molly Bish. Hmm. But shortly before her death, Crystal called her sister and implied that he was involved in quote-unquote murders, including Molly's. But police showed a picture of Rodney to Jane, and she said it wasn't him. And like I said, she saw him up close and personal. So I feel mm-hmm. like there would be some, something recognizable. Yeah. The other suspect that came about as a result of this show wasn't actually identified. His son had came, like he had earlier come forward 
to police, suspecting that his father was involved in those Connecticut River Valley murders. Apparently, the mom had told this son that when she saw the composite of Jane's attacker, she thought it was her husband. Oh. And then she later told her son, why would you tell your son this? But, you know, you do you. That one night, his dad came home covered in blood and fearing for her life, obviously, she's not like, why the heck are you covered in blood? Which right. would be what I would say. And then I'd probably right. be stabbed. But she no. just helps him burn all these bloody clothes. Oh, no. And then the next day, she saw on the news that a woman had been murdered within a mile of a bar where her husband had fre- often frequented. I wonder what her husband did for a living. I don't know. That would be interesting to know. If he traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. But even the son said that his father was, quote, unquote, violent and dangerous. Oh. And that he had issues with women in his life. Oh, there's the FBI profile. Mm -hmm. He had rage issues, the son would say, and would get, quote, unquote, completely out of control. So in one instance in this unsolved article, he actually threw his wife out of a second story window (gasps) and held her there by her hair. (gasps) Yeah. And he told her or she told her son that the her dad his dad was like a sexual deviant. Now that part doesn't make sense to me since there mm-hmm. wasn't the sexual aspect to the crimes. I guess unless he gets the satisfaction in two different ways. Oh, like out of the violence. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Or maybe he just is not violent in the sexual way like with when mm-hmm. sex is involved but mm-hmm. is when he's trying to assert the dominance maybe. right right and the family did live for several years on a massachusetts farm and apparently when he would get mad he would violently kill pigs and chickens oh he also owned a jeep wagoneer <gasps> yeah And when shown a photo of this man, Jane, according to this article, became so frightened that she said the hairs on the back of her neck stood up in fear. (gasps) And that she was certain this man was her attacker. Oh, wow. But he actually died in 2008 without ever being investigated, (gasps) might I add. And I didn't read if he had ever been listed or considered as a suspect in the case but i'm assuming probably not well i don't know how much connection they would need but couldn't they if you have especially if the the son is still around and is wanting to see if his dad did commit these crimes because he has also identified his dad as a violent mm-hmm. man could provide DNA that could like be compared, DNA. yeah, with Jane. Yeah, I wonder. You know, and if they're not investigating it, then they're not going to think to do that, right? You know, when we're talking about serial killers, it is harder, I think, to pinpoint who we believe the killer may be because, you know, we have more limited information on the victims and then 
way they were found and right. all of that, the background of them, just because there are so many. But what are your final thoughts or anything you would like to add? So in my mind with the notes that I took, uh, <laughs> as you were talking, um, obviously this is somebody who is very comfortable being outside in mm -hmm. nature because even in the park scenario you're in, it's not really a park like central park it's the wetlands right. you know so mm -hmm. um much more rural and then others near a river uh the the subdivision one still throws me off yeah um but there's a lot with hitchhikers along the road. That's why I asked what this last suspect did for a living. Cause I'd be curious to know if, if he like did something right something. where he had to travel quite a bit. Um, but I do feel like at, obviously he would have needed to be in my mind, a little bit older, even by at least 78 when that first verified mm -hmm. attack happened. But with the the act of killing with a knife, it tells me that it is somebody who's very adept with that kind of weapon. And it sounds like this last or this last potential perpetrator was because he would butcher pigs and mm -hmm. chicken. So he knows how to use a knife for that purpose. And so, um, and with the anger against women, it seems like mm -hmm. of all the potential people, he's the one that fits the most. And so I just wish that we could have familial DNA to at least rule in or rule out. But the final piece would be Jane's reaction. Oh yeah. Cause I feel like something yeah. in her would clue her Maybe. in. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, you know, maybe through sharing this case, we do bring that attention to, hey, we have this possible perpetrator. Can we please see about doing familial DNA? Right. In the shadow of the Connecticut River Valley, a chilling puzzle persists. The Connecticut River Valley Killer, an elusive presence that has eluded justice for decades, the stories of the victims remain a somber reminder of the darkness that can suddenly descend upon the most idyllic of places. Despite the passage of time, the tireless efforts of investigators, and the unwavering resolve of the community, the perpetrator's identity remains shrouded in mystery. As we close today's case on this haunting tale, we're left with a profound sense of the enduring challenges of solving cold cases and the deep scars they often leave. The Connecticut River Valley Killer has left a mark on the region and on the hearts of those who love the victims. While the truth remains elusive, the quest for justice and closure endures, a testament to the resilience of the communities and the unwavering commitment to honor the memories of those who were taken too soon. The Connecticut River Valley Killer may remain a mystery, but the hope for answers remains a beacon of light in the darkest of nights. I hope that one day the shadows will be lifted and the truth will be revealed. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, 
Or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you next week. Love notes with Maggie and Allison. Whoop whoop. I always wait for the whoop whoop. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're one week closer, guys, to baby Dameron, and it's I'm real. So excited. <laughs> Maggie was just telling me that she's nervous about her water breaking in public, though. So yeah. it's it's a yeah. real fear. I get it. As long as he gets here, my water can break wherever it's fine. That's right. <laughs> That's what I'll tell myself anyway. That's right. You won't be embarrassed for long. Then you'll right. just see his face and you'll be happy. So we did just want to remind you guys that Maggie is going to take a couple weeks off from the podcast while she is getting accustomed to motherhood and to eliminate stress and other time commitments so she can just enjoy that sweet baby. So with that in mind, Allison will be doing the show by herself for a few weeks, which she graciously accepted that. (laughs) But that is a lot of work on her behalf. So just be patient and be gracious with her because it is going to be a lot of work for her. I know I'm going to miss sending love to all of our listeners, though, and this time we get with each other each week. I know. This is my favorite part. And I mean that honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. And speaking of love and sending love out, we do have some love going out to Elise Go7 on Instagram, who wrote to us, quote, you two podcasters are amazing. Thank you for repeatedly stressing how it does not matter what a victim did. He or she was deserving. This is so, so, so important. Love you. And I know. Well, we love you right back. Yeah, we do. And we also love Kelly, who -hmm. wrote us to say, quote, I've been listening for a couple of months and I'm finally all caught up listening to the last episode now. Just wanted to tell you, ladies, this is my favorite podcast. Keep up the great work. You all rock. Kelly. I know. That's so sweet. And I wanted to say really a deep heartfelt thank you for all of you that have actually sent little baby Dameron gifts. There's been so many. Suzanne sent him some things. Alyssa sent him some things. Anna and Suzanne and June from Crime With My Coffee sent him some gifts. I know. We just know some sweet people. I know. And one of them was the cutest little, like, because y'all know I love October, November, December, because Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And they sent me this cute little, like, long sleeve onesie that has pumpkins on it, like little jack-o'-lanterns. Oh, my goodness. So cute. And they're all washed. We're sanitized oh. if you sent little teethy things and ready to go. So, it's exciting. 
I know. I'm going to get bombarded with pictures and I cannot wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I and I'll wait. I'm going to be like, what's he look like today, Maggie? Send me a picture. <laughs> <laughs> we also have love going out to Pam, who reached out to us on Facebook to give us insight mm-hmm. into her thinking as she was listening to the first half of this case of the Connecticut River Valley killer. And I love when you guys reach out and you say, yeah, same. I'm thinking for the theories. I love love it. So keep those coming. And we also have love going to Tawny, who wrote to say, quote, I've been listening to you guys for a few weeks now, mostly at work, end quote, which I mean, that's the perfect place to listen. Mm -hmm. Then Tawny went on to say, quote, normally, I really don't get into podcasts, but it seems like you pair are the only thing that gets me through the night shift. Thank you. End quote. No, Tawny, Thank you. We are so happy that all of you have found us and that you're getting caught up on all the episodes. Binge away. Yeah, keep on binging. And if you do manage to get caught up and you just can't wait for the next week, you can always join Patreon to get access Mm -hmm. to additional content. And to all of our $12, $15, and $20 a month Patreon supporters, you could also get a quarterly swag box. That's right. And the next box, which will be in November, will be my favorite things. And then the February box is going to be some clothing, some swag. And you can't beat that. I know. So if you want bonus content, join our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And if you want gifts in the mail, Join at one of those higher tiers, and that's exactly what you'll get every quarter. You just have to go to patreon.com slash coffee and cases to join. Also, we're coming up on the deadline for voting for the podcast award. So we wanted to just remind you a few more times. That's right. Of this very <laughs> exciting fact. We are again a finalist for the podcast awards best female hosted podcast. So please consider voting for us in round two because we would owe you forever. We really would. Make sure that you check your email if you voted in round one, including your spam folder, Mm -hmm. to see if you received an email from Podcast Awards about being chosen to take part in the final round of voting. And if so, like Maggie said, we would so appreciate your vote again and, you know, maybe bring home the win. Fingers crossed that we can show everyone that an indie podcast just like ours can beat out some of those big name shows. Mm -hmm. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds. If you've been listening to our show for more than one episode, then you probably know about my love for animals. What I don't often talk about is the difficulty of meeting all their nutritional needs. Trust me, not all dog food is created equal, but we're about to solve that problem for you. It's called Nom Nom. In Nom Nom, you can actually see proteins and vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. And ordering it is the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. Isn't it time to feel good about the food you're feeding your dog? Order Nom Nom today. 
Go to trinom.com slash coffee and cases and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love fresh, delicious meals, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom.